and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How much money am I actually getting into my bank account? Today, we have Pia Mancini, our other panelist. Hi, Pia. Hey, everyone. And a fantastic guest I'm really excited about. We have Andre Stoltz calling to us from Helsinki. Andre is a self-employed JavaScript wizard. He's done a lot of really interesting open source work. And he's also been really instrumental in pointing out how open source funds individual developers. He wrote a really great blog post. I think it was last year, maybe a couple of years ago. Open source beneath the poverty line. Andre, how are you doing today? Great. Uh, thank you. I'm doing good. So tell us a bit more about what you do, how you got started as a developer. What sort of work right. do you do at the moment? So I was a consultant some four or three years ago, and I started doing open source on my free time. Just that kind of thing of like, I'm going to post this hobby thing. I'm nothing serious, but you know how that turns out usually. So I did a framework called Psycho.js, got some attention, some GitHub stars and some conferences and stuff. And lately I am self-employed, meaning that I do consulting and also I do open source. And the percentage of which I get income from those varies over time. Currently, it's been quite a lot of consulting, but sometimes quite a lot of open source, that kind of thing. Have you managed to consult while writing open source code? Like, do people pay you to write open source code itself, or do you normally get contracts which are sort of closed and so you're writing internally for someone else? Yeah, so consulting to write open source has basically never happened to me. It's actually a pretty nice idea if you manage to pull it off, but the consulting I've done was basically there's a Psycho.js project and they needed like, you know, it's a proprietary software and they needed some updates. Yeah, I've had it happen to me before, but it is really rare and it's hard to find clients who understand that there's a reason to make things open source and that you want to get paid to do that. Pitching up is incredibly difficult there, which I think is really relevant. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to write this fantastic blog post, which I'm going to keep talking about just because it really blew my mind? I actually wrote the blog post called Software Below the Poverty Line. I wanted to make another point, which was that the price of software is going down. But in order to kind of prove that point, I did some research. You know, I checked all the open collective pages and all the Patreons and stuff like that. Just gathering the data, just checking out how it looks like. And I found a result that was like staggering. So I just decided to write that separately. But actually, I have a bunch of other things to discuss around that blog post. I just wanted to like slice it so that I'd only talk about this topic. So one of the things I'm curious about is what do you mean by open source beneath the poverty line? For those who haven't read the post, how does that come into play? I mean, I'm a developer and I'm above the poverty line. So, and I write an open source. So how does that work? So one of the things that also motivated me to write that blog post was that I met Henry Sue, I think that's his name, from the Babel Maintainer in one conference. And his conference talk was basically about how little money there is for Babel. And I was surprised because Babel is one of those bigger projects. And I was like, wait, what? Are you just like complaining that you want more money? But then I checked that their actual income is not surprising. So, so it's less than 100K per developer on average, I think. I think there's only one person who earns more than $100K per year, which is Evan Yu. It's like an extremely exceptional case. So yeah, meeting with Henry made me think a bit more like, hey, what's actually going on here? 
are these people actually suffering? And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who write open source as like a hobby thing or as something related to their job, so they get paid well. But there's also a good slice of developers that just try to make a living from open source. And those developers honestly do not get a lot. I think another example would be Sindra Sorhas. Like he used to live in Norway, I think, and now he lives in Thailand, I think. So it's a bit less of like cost to live. But also I know other people like, you know, Substack and others in general, they don't get a lot of money from those projects. Yeah. As far as I know, almost none of them get a lot of money. I mean, you and I both come from the JavaScript world, which is sort of what I know. And it's really marked by having this early adopters, early creators who are very prolific, who were mostly white, educated, rich, industrialized, democratic men. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of diversity going on in the JavaScript world, or at least it wasn't early on. And a lot of them made stuff because they felt like it and had a lot of fun and then ended up with this huge problem of, well, I'm not getting paid for my work. And either decided not to care or decided, well, let's shift to something else. Sindra did live in Norway. He is Norwegian. He does live in Bangkok now. He also does consulting on the side. And so it's not necessarily a thing where it's he has to live in Thailand. A friend of mine once said, if you really want to pay off student loans, why aren't you living in Costa Rica? <laughs> and it was a really interesting point for me. But a lot of these developers really have moved on to consulting. And I think it, it comes down to open source is given away for free. So why should people pay? I mean, this is one of the things that Open Collective is trying to solve, right? Or other projects which are trying to solve the sustainability issue. So for those of you who haven't picked it up so far, because I failed to adequately explaining it, basically it says that almost no one in open source makes enough money to go above the poverty line, which is just a shocking statement. It's shocking because we all feel like, oh, learn how to code, therefore you'll make things. It's also like, for those people who want to keep on doing open source, maybe they have the pressure from the community that, hey, you're the maintainer of this, please work on this. We donate money to you, please work on it. You know, and It's not enough that people just donate money. It's like, how much money? And you know, that option of like, I want to work on open source full-time it's on some people's minds, but it's basically not realistic. So have you done any work looking at how many people in open source actually make money consulting and don't make money from selling their open source at all? That's a bit difficult for me to scrap from the internet. I have to be some kind of marketing company in order to get that yeah. data. It would be lovely to get all of that, but I, I can't. Like Gladly, Open Collective is open and also Patreon. But GitHub sponsors, for instance, I have no idea how much people get. Yeah, but it's, it's a good point. I think like in many cases, in many of those projects that I pointed out in the blog, also those projects were led by developers that were in a job, let's say Electron, or they have other means of sustaining themselves. And also yours truly, I mean, I sustain myself partially from consulting and other means like training or workshops. That Those are quite good. I've met Evan Yu in workshop situations, others, you know, that's a pretty viable way. So I think that I'm not surprised that this is the state that we have at the moment or where we are, because first open source had to win the argument about like, hey, you know, we are reliable. You can use open source. We are not cancer, you know, like Microsoft was saying. 
So open source or, or free open source won that battle first, right? Which was like the cultural argument about like what's good about open source and what's reliable and trustworthy about software done by a collaborative group of people who might never meet in person with no clear leadership and no clear governance structure in most cases, right? So once that took place, I think that we moved as a community, as an ecosystem, we started moving over towards like, oh, okay, great. Now everyone's using it. Like, how are we going to pay for it, right? So I think it's still early stages. So I'm not surprised by the fact that not a lot of maintainers can make a living paid, being paid by their community. Also, there was, I mean, and this is not blowing my own horn, obviously, but like before Open Collective, there wasn't a clear path for project-directed funding. Like the financial infrastructure wasn't there, right? Because it was really difficult to get money out of companies into the hands of like, you know, a maintainer living in Bangkok. How on earth do you do that, right? So, and we've been around for four years. So it's not like this has been, you know, a very, been around forever and still no one is getting money. What I am concerned about though, is what you brought up about the cost of software going to zero, because that's when you mix both things and that starts to look really terrifying, right? Because if the cost of consuming or the cost of the value perceived of the output um, of what we are doing as a community is going down to zero, and there is obviously zero marginal cost of someone else using it, then how do you build the argument for, or how, how does economics work for that to be sustained? How do you make the argument of more money going into the ecosystem if the cost is going to zero? So the whole thing that I thought was like, if you think of the price of typical software some decades ago, let's say Microsoft Office, it used to cost the box of CDs. I, I think it was like 400 USD per, per four years. So it, they released kind of like every four years that was like Microsoft Office 2003, I guess, and then 2007. Anyway, the point is that each user puts in $100 per year was the cost of Office. And then with something like Google Docs coming along, it's hard to say exactly how much Google Docs gets, but Google in general gets about $20 per user per year through all of the ads stuff. And also that's a pretty stable price point. Also for Facebook, that gets also money from ads, varies with the years, but around 16 and 50 US dollars per user per year. So basically you can think of Google Docs as taking a slice of Google's revenue. So it's probably something around $10 per user per year or five. Anyway, it's maximum $20 per user per year. And what I discovered in this blog post is that I tried to discover what is that price point for most of these open source projects. And it's hard to know how many users there are for an open source project, but it's reasonable to get the GitHub stars as a proxy because you know that every person that press star is a user that likes that thing, is a potential user. So you can think of probably the n- actual number of users is higher than the GitHub stars. If, let's say there's 20,000 GitHub stars, there's probably much more users than that. So if you divide the revenue by the number of stars, you get an upper bound for the price point. So the average is around $1 per GitHub star per year. So that means that there's a lot less money going on there. And there's a progression from 100 to 10 to 1. And arguably, if I would tell the average good programmer, would you make an open source alternative to spreadsheets? You know, And 
they could do that quite quickly with open source components that they just put together. So the idea of, you know, how much does the spreadsheet software cost is going towards zero and it could keep on going further, I think. So why is that going towards zero? First of all, there is the expectation that companies want to pay less. So obviously they want to cut costs. So sometimes there is a component that is, let's say a front-end component that is proprietary product, let's say some kind of charts component. And there's a bunch of alternatives that are open source. They're not so good, but one year after they become good. So the company has a motivation to use open source components that are free. And they do that. And the fact that open source is used a lot is because companies use it. But also an interesting thing is that I put a poll in Twitter some days or weeks ago about you know people or individuals that use open source software as an alternative to some paid service. The primary reason why they just chose that is because of price or basically it costs zero for them to either self-host or use the local software or something. So there is this pressure or expectation that people have that software is free and I don't want to pay for it. Now, what comes beyond that? So let's think about an open source software that people use, but the software keeps on nagging you to fund it or donate to it, such as, you know, there's the terminal where some projects ask, you know, please donate to my project. So there is a price to that decision is that people will feel annoyed. So over time, people will choose an alternative to that open source library that doesn't have that nagging thing. And that's very interesting because they're basically saying that we want even cheaper. We want an open source that doesn't nag me to donate to it, which means that there's this pressure towards let's have cheaper software. Not only pressure, but there is also the aspect of efficiency. We are getting better at making better software. It's easier to build software. You just put stuff together and that's it, kind of. So it's easier for me to like sit down on an evening and make a pretty cool piece of software. And then there is like less cost for me to produce that software. And thus I will charge less for it, you know. So there's all this kind of interesting stuff going on. And I'm trying to think, okay, what is the future of open source and sustainability? Will there be more money? Apparently there's less and less money going in. And this is very interesting to me. And I, and I kind of wanted to look at the data and see if this is actually happening. And it, it seems like it is. It seems to me that we are facing the eternal problem of the commons, right? You're looking at the price of the artifact itself the price of what it's being produced, essentially, right? And in open source, you can't exclude people from accessing the artifact, the result of your production, right? What you can exclude people from is yourself. You know, you're the producer, not what is produced, right? And so I think that maybe there lies one of the keys of thinking about sustainability in the future, because you know, you can't exclude people from looking, using, sharing your software, but you can't exclude people from accessing your most precious resource that might not be the software, but it's your time. And so I think in that is where 
we need to start thinking about sustainability because I agree with you. I think the cost of producing software is only going to go down as is the cost of producing most other things. But your time is not. That cost is never going to go down. It's only going to go up, if anything, as you become more experienced, as you become a better producer. The access to your time is going to be more and more expensive. So maybe that's what we need to start thinking of pricing, not the result of your production. That's a good point. And it touches something that is very important that's connected to time, which is attention. So attention is actually something that you can monetize. So obviously, if you get a lot of attention, you can, well, if you ask for donations, let's say you have 100,000 followers and you ask for donations, you will get good amount of donations. If you have 10 followers and you ask for donations, you won't. And time is related to attention because people who have more attention, famous people, get time from others more easily and they're able to monetize that. And I think also like the more popular you are and you do consulting, for instance, the more valuable your, your time will be, which is a path towards sustainability. But overall, there's an interesting thing there with a relation to attention. If we have, like, let's say, a bunch of modular open source pieces built by thousands of people, that means that all of those people will probably not have the same amount of fame as the most famous open source developer. And then the question is, can we help sustain those people because they don't get a lot of attention and... Their time isn't therefore not as valuable for some company to buy in consulting and things like that. It's quite tricky. Yeah. I'm not even sure that that's uh, like, it's just not realistic, right? I mean, I use a, a thousand different JavaScript libraries. One of them I use is Lodash. Lodash has tons of different methods. Let's go with, you know, collection.find. So someone wrote that particular method. But I'm never going to think, who wrote this method? I should go out and thank them. I just think, yeah, I'm using Lodash and it's pretty sweet. And so it's a fundamental problem. While you were talking, Pia, you mentioned, you know, this is a problem of the commons. It's similar to the problem of the commons, but I'm not sure it's the problem of the commons. I had this really fascinating metaphor in my head. It's fascinating to me. I hope it is to you. Of Japanese macaques or any sort of primate learning how to use a rock to open a coconut or to open like a, a clam. Right. And this is the standard thing that has happened. We've seen it happen as scientists. It's super fun to watch where one's very smart monkey will be like, I can open this clam easier by hitting at it with a rock. And then someone else looks at that monkey and says, Oh, that dude's using a rock. I should use a rock. So, you know, that's basically how culture works. Right. And it propagates through for the original monkey to ask every other monkey who ever uses a rock, please pay me your clam. Because I taught you how to do that. So you wouldn't have that many clams if I hadn't taught you how to do that. And then, you know, I'm imagining a monkey that programs the rock that every other monkey uses to say, please pay the really awesome guy who invented this. And it's ridiculous, right? Like, it's not, it's not really the commons. The commons is, are the rocks. They're available. They're everywhere. If someone hoards all the rocks, then they will have a lot of capital. But you can't really hoard the idea in the same way. No, I agree, Rich. And, and I think that that's exactly a point. You cannot unsee also the idea of the rock being used to open the coconut. Like once it's out there, you learn it, you can't forget it. You can't, you know. So what I was thinking of was more like if it's difficult to open the clam without killing the thing inside of the clam and you need help from the monkey, then 
that's what I was saying. Like the monkey has limited time to teach how to properly use. Yeah. So what the monkey needs to do is harness its social capital. That's where its value comes in is saying, hey, in the future, I can help you open things even more efficiently by finding better rocks. So you want to pay attention to me. And that monkey, if they're smart, will go out and and this is where the metaphor totally breaks down because you can't really, you know, it doesn't work. But you can see how in humans, at least, the social capital is what's important. You give away the ideas for free and then you basically say, I'm a really good person. You should pay me to consult. And that seems to solve the issue by just refocusing where we're spending our time. Are we spending our time trying to get money for the original invention, which is now out there, which is, is just gone? I mean, open source means that people can see it. It means people can use it unless it has a GPL license, which is also really awesome, but very different. And that's a whole different discussion. Why do they bring it up? Or do we focus on social capital? And how do we make sure that everyone down the stack at some point, if they want to, or if possible, gets the attention they deserve for the effort they put in? And that's pretty tough. I was going to say, actually, that the monkey metaphor actually reminded me of patents. I mean, that was kind of like the point of patents is that you can say that this is my intellectual property. Whoever uses rocks to open these things will now have to pay me. And it's interesting. I mean, I I think software rarely went down that line and I'm not proposing that we should. It's kind of weird idea anyway. Yeah, I don't know. But we're in this mess where open source is intertwined with copyright world and it's a mess. I think patents make a lot more sense in different circumstances. So they made a lot more sense 100 years ago where it was really difficult to invent something. And it was difficult to actually have the resources to figure out how to invent it and then to build it. And so if you released your idea, someone else could copy you and you would lose a lot of value because for a while there, you were the only person who could do this sort of work. I mean, think about it like making an airplane, right? You patent the airplane, no one else can make airplanes, which means that you then are able to get all the money for airplanes, which JavaScript, it doesn't make sense, right? I could try and patent left pad if I were the creator, but someone else could just make another left pad with a minor addition. And it's just, it totally breaks down very quickly because the cost of making it is low. So it's easy for everyone else, which means that the ability for you to have an, a corner on the market is also incredibly low. And the amount of process needed to process the patent itself is just far too high for the return you're going to get. And so patents make sense in some situations, particularly things like bio like medicine right now, there's a lot of patents in that space and Cambridge and Harvard and all that area. It's interesting that like open sourceness or whatever you call open something is touching all these kind of different spaces as well. So one simple example I can take from my mind is just, let's say open photography where, you know, there used to be stock photos and now there's Unsplash where with a different type of license, it's the same effects of open source. And Perhaps also in other spaces, there's more of this like open something, either data or I don't know, there's all kinds of things. So maybe those spaces will also be touched and patents will be less relevant there as well. Who knows? I would think so. Stock photos are really interesting. It reminds me of videos. I mean, I was talking to someone yesterday who mentioned that local newspapers often have videos now because the cost of making just went down so much. Anyone can go out with a nice camera and take a professional grade video in around three seconds and edit it in around 10 seconds and put it up there. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, you had to lug around a boombox on your shoulder everywhere to even get anything. So I wonder if, if the, the cost of software is going down so much just because the cost of production is going down so much. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that has been a big factor 
for content production, not just software production, has been user experience. So like in the past decade, we've been chanting user experience a lot, which means that, you know, the ability of easily doing this. And once we have that, we have more content. So content becomes more easily produced, therefore easily available. And then it reaches areas like journalism and everything, which also means that the more content you have, the less valuable each piece of content will be. You could maybe get it through other means, always free. And I think this is touching many industries. Also, let's say gaming, you know, gaming used to be, or still is in some regards, you know, you pay for the box or the CD, but now there's the free to play. And there's also different flavors of free to play. Well, there's the type where you pay something to win. There's also the type where you pay just a skin. That would be Fortnite. And it's interesting because that model of paying for something ephemeral or something, you know, just cosmetic is quite similar to donations in open source. Because when you donate to open source, you get like a badge or something saying that, yay, I'm now a person who donates to this. It's kind of like a skin, right? You get a skin for your GitHub account or something. So it's a similar model. And we're seeing that model in different spaces. So what I'd like to write about one day is the fact that content has no value or content is going towards zero. But still, at the same time, we have like big tech is the biggest money making thing on the planet. So clearly, there's a lot of money in this space at the same time as there's little money in this space. It's kind of weird. But I think it can be explained pretty clearly by attention. So as we say, the famous people get money either through ads or donations. And the interesting thing is also if you can accumulate attention, then you get a lot of money. And that's the case for platforms. So obviously, if you get a tiny slice of a fee for all of the creators, donations or ads, then you get a lot of money. And that's clearly the game that's going on now with the biggest platforms is just to take a tiny slice of everyone's content creation or essentially a tiny slice of every, everyone's attention. And I think ads are literally a brilliant way of making money for this space because they literally monetize on the attention per se. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating conclusion, but it's also troublesome for open source. How do we do that in open source? especially for transitive dependencies, for instance, where some tiny dependency used by some other dependency that you use doesn't get your attention because you don't want to know about it. Actually, you're just like, I don't care about you. <laughs> but it has to get attention in order to be sustainable. It's difficult. But it's also important that we realize the, the mechanisms that's, that are going on in the industry at whole. Yeah, maybe we're also thinking about it wrongly when thinking about like, rewarding creators. Maybe creators just want to, you know, some of them want money, but some of them just want to do something. I'm thinking of Dominic Tarr, for example. They, you know, they just want to do something and just leave it there. And they don't yeah. want the money because they don't want the responsibility, right? Actually, D Dominic, I know him personally. He literally does not want money. If you give exactly. money to him, it's like, I don't want this. Yeah, he doesn't want the money. He doesn't want the responsibility. It's like, I build this, you know, you use it. It's like, there's a reason why it has a license that says, as is, whatever. So maybe we are only thinking about that and we're not thinking about the maintainers of the software because it's not just the person who produces the content, it's also the people who maintain it and update it and keep it alive. And 
But my fear of just rewarding content creators is a world where like the topology is going to look like a star, you know, like it's going to be super centralized. And, you know, the person who did it is the person who was able to have the resources, the time, the, you know, the, the means to build this software. It's going to get all the money because he gets all or she gets all the attention. But all the people who are currently maintaining that and adding to it, they don't get that attention. And so they don't get those, they don't reap those benefits or they don't get those rewards. And the same thing that happens in the dependency graph also happens in the community of an open source project. How do we spread that? In the same way that a main software should be a beacon for its dependencies, and we can figure out a way of trickling like funding towards those or sharing the funding down the dependency graph. The same with a community. How can someone who's the natural attractor of all the attention can spread that? to the community who's also doing the work of the heavy lifting or the work of maintaining the software? It's a really tough question. I mean, this podcast is entirely only made possible by Paul. Paul goes through and actually edits stuff. Paul's really the person who should be getting all the cred for this podcast, right? I don't even show up sometimes, right? We have movable panelists. So how do we get Paul more money or praise? I don't know. One of the things I'm wondering is whether Open Collective as a model, and I don't mean to pick on, on Open Collective, but or GitHub just totally gets it wrong straight out of the gate by focusing on code. And instead, what we should be doing is building a social media thing for people and just saying, here's a person. Yeah, they code, but like they're really cool. The problem with that, again, is it overprivileges people who are really good at, say, marketing themselves, right? It's no coincidence that I'm on this podcast and I'm not going to say I'm totally eloquent, but I'm mildly eloquent because I was well-educated because my parents invested a lot of money in me when I was young. And so I was able to go to public debate schools and able to get over my stuttering problem because I had a speech therapist. And so, you know, I'm incredibly privileged and therefore here I am and other people aren't. How do you deal with that then? It's like the secondary problem and it just keeps going to like, what do we do for the people in general? Yeah. Uh, on this podcast, you guys get a lot of these moments where, what do we do with the world? <laughs> well, that's just sustainability, right? It's existential. Yeah. We're coming up on time. So I'm curious, what do you want out of your open source work? What, what are you interested in? So I realized that there's not a lot of money in open source, except if you are exceptional, obviously. And a good example would be, you know, Vue.js or Mastodon. I think Gargran, I don't know how you pronounce his name, the maintainer of Mastodon, he gets a lot of money from it. I mean, not a lot, but like decent money from it. And he does it full-time, donation-based. And I think if we can aspire to that exception, then we can have a pretty good outcome for society because it's open source and for us because we get decent pay. So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to reach that ideal, swim against the stream, and let's see if that happens. But like beyond me, I think also the world deserves open knowledge, I think. Because why? <laughs> because it's kind of hard to keep knowledge locked in for a long time. At some point, everything will come out. And also, it's the kind of society that we want to see where right people can just you know, share with each other and things get done without obstacles or arbitrary obstacles. Like, well, now you have to pay me a price. For instance, the monkey example where, well, now the person who 
knows how to hit with stones has to be paid. But why? It's an obstacle towards that efficiency of, of society. And I think we're, we're getting there. I think open source is a pretty radical thing that people thought would not work, and it's working. And I think we should just keep on doing that. That sounds good to me. I'm sold. Speaking of spreading love to other people down at the Pensy Graph, let's get on to Spotlight. So Spotlight's where we highlight projects that have helped us out along the way or things that we feel like need more attention. Pia, what do you have for us today? So my Spotlight for today is a solution called Crowding. It's an open source solution for localization management, and we use it to translate the Open Collective uh, platform. It's a really easy way for our community to help us translate Open Collective. So we have Open Collective on, you know, languages that we would never have, and it's like 100% translated to Portuguese, for example, and only 30% to Spanish. So come on, folks, I need help here. <laughs> but use crowding is it's really, really, really good. Crowding is also run by some amazing people. They're really great developers and they're really keen on helping out. Absolutely love it. My spotlight today is, I don't think, you know, code makes a lot of sense. Sure, Papa Parse is really good at helping me deal with CSV stuff and I'm grateful to the people who made it. But what I want to spotlight is actually people because I think it was the conclusion I came to in this, in this podcast. So the person I'm going to spotlight today is Moxie Marlin Spike. Every time I think of Dominic Tarr, I think of the fact that he is a sailboat. I know he got you into sailing, Andre. Moxie Marlinspike is the person who got me into sailing. I ended up buying a boat because I watched this video, Hold Fast. Highly suggested. It was made on a laptop with a 30-day return policy about anarchist punks just buying a crappy boat in the Caribbean and sailing it around. Moxie then went on to become very influential in the space, which I find hilarious. Because when I initially saw this video, I'm like, that's what I want to do is be totally on the outskirts of society and do nothing with it and just sail around all day. But maybe you could do both. So that's my pick. Andre, what's yours? Yeah, I really liked a library that I stumbled upon called Neon Bindings. It basically allows you to bridge between Rust and Node.js, which is great because Rust is exploding now in adoption and it makes a lot of sense for performance and safety. And it, it sort of was a game changer for me because I had a situation where I had a bunch of Node.js modules that would make more sense in Rust, but migrating the whole thing would be a pain. But if you can use Rust inside Node.js, that's a really good migration path towards Rust. And I think the project is well run, well documented. It's a great idea. It's just like something that I'm proud of that people have made this. Yeah. Love it. Neon bindings. Thank you. Right before you go, where can people find you on the internet? Where can people hire you, look at stuff you do, give their attention or use your code? If people don't make a typo, which they often do, it is stalts.com. So that's S-T-A-L-T-Z.com. You're probably going to make a typo. Just check, check it again. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Take care. Thanks. 